to uh, have as our speaker, Kirby Anderson. He'll be speaking from the book of Ezekiel. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38. Our scripture reading will come from chapter 38, verses 1 through 6. Ezekiel 38, verses 1 through 6. This wonderful book of prophecy in the book of Ezekiel, as he writes in chapter 38. The scriptures read. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops. Beth to Gamara and the remotest parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. As I mentioned, many of you are familiar with Kirby Anderson, our speaker this morning. He has more than 30 years of experience in the ministry. He is the uh, president and national director of Probe Ministries, a a, uh, ministry that has worldwide impact, helping believers all around the world to have a Christian worldview. He is the host of Point of View, a radio talk show uh, program. He serves as a visiting professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, Philadelphia Biblical Seminary, Temple Baptist Seminary, and he's spoken on various campuses, including the University of Michigan, Vanderbilt University, Princeton, John Hopkins, University of Colorado, University of Texas. He graduated from Oregon State University. He holds master's degrees from Yale University and Georgetown University. And his editorials have appeared in many newspapers, his articles. He's the author of numerous books, and many of us have been blessed through his ministry as he was our church family retreat speaker this year. And this morning we had a wonderful time of learning about the Middle East and the turmoil that is there. And once again, he comes to share about Israel and prophecy and what the scriptures have to say. Let's give him a warm welcome as he comes. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for everybody that uh, was here last hour, and I will uh, kind of pick up where we left off because we're going to be talking about prophecy in the Middle East. And I want to commend uh, the pastor for selecting this because uh, a while back he said, you know, do you have something that maybe is on the Middle East and maybe on prophecy? And I said, yeah, well, I have something I have done before on the Middle East, which I did last hour. I have um, been around some of the prophecy stuff, so this is in some respects a new presentation I'm going to give to you. But I wanted to thank you for even being willing to address the issue because that's 
really not happening much anymore. Uh, just last week, I was at the International Society of Christian Apologetics in Kansas City, and we had a great time there, and I'm going to try to bring the conference next year to Dallas. Maybe sometime we can bring it to Seattle if we can. But um, I, uh, as I was flying home, I sat on the airplane, and then all of a sudden, somebody across the aisle sat down and said, I can't believe it. I'm sitting across the aisle from Kirby Anderson. I thought, okay, I'm in trouble now, you know. <laughs> and I said, oh, you're going back to Dallas? He said, no, no, I live in Topeka. You and I met at Topeka Bible Church. I said, oh, okay, well, that's great. Uh, why are you going to Dallas? Well, you guys had all those tornadoes there, and I work for Owings Corning, and we're going to be putting in roofs and all sorts of gutters and everything. And so, it's, you know, this guy goes wherever there's a disaster. So if you have a disaster here, you'll see him as well. So anyway, he starts uh, talking across the aisle. And the, one of the things he says is, I bet everybody's really interested in prophecy. And I said, you know, recently I was with Mark Hitchcock, and I'm going to mention his book in just a minute. And Mark is one of our graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary and speaks on prophecy. He said, but a lot of churches will not even touch it. And I understand why. You know, you've had all sorts of crazy people setting dates and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, if you say you're not going to address prophecy, do you realize that 27% of the Bible, when written, was prophetic? Now, much of that has been fulfilled, but more of it is going to be fulfilled in the future. And so if you say, I'm never going to address prophecy, you're really leaving a lot out. And so this morning, I want to just take one set of prophecies that I think really relate to the Middle East. And I mentioned last time, but let me mention again, if you say, I'm kind of intrigued by this, some new books that have come out over the last year by people that are graduated from Dallas Seminary. Uh, Mark Hitchcock, who I mentioned just a minute ago, has his doctorate. He's a pastor at Faith Bible Church in Oklahoma, where they have even more tornadoes than we have in Dallas right now, by the way. And uh, his, uh, he's written many books on prophecy and uh, is very well respected. I really enjoy interviewing him. And his latest book, Middle East Burning, is a lot about Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we're going to be looking at in just a minute. But another book that has come out um, uh, in more rec- a little while ago is by Ron Rhodes. Uh, both of these are relatively recent books. Ron Rhodes, also a graduate of Dallas Theological seminary teaches at southeastern seminary and some other places northern storm rising and so those are two books that if you find yourself saying well i'd like to know a little bit more about what we are talking about today that will be a way that you maybe can find some of those books and the books are available not only in print version but for those of us that have an iphone or an ipad they're available on kindle and all sorts of their formats as well so you could read those If you look at your handout, you will notice I've given you kind of a what, when, where, how, why, who kind of questions. And we're going to kind of go through looking at Ezekiel and then come back and make some final comments. And Ezekiel 38, those first few verses that uh, Joe read, uh, answer the fundamental question, first of all, about who, the participants. And, you know, this is a prophecy about this battle uh, that is actually part of Gog and Magog. And it begins with this list of ten proper names. And in a sense, these are God's most wanted list, if you will. It includes a lot of unfamiliar names. As Joe 
Joe was reading it, a lot of you thought, you know, maybe he was uh, mispronouncing the words or speaking in tongues or whatever. Because you've not heard much of this before. I mean, Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, what in the world are those? So we're going to spend some time really trying to understand the participants and what that means. And so again, we'll go back to our scripture here. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face towards Gog in the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, the prophecy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out in all of your army horses and horsemen. Then he goes on to say, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togarma with the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. That's quite a long list there, isn't there? So let me now try to unpack that. That first one that you see is the word Gog. That appears 11 times, interestingly enough, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it's really a title. It's not a name. It's a title. It would be like a prince or like king. And it refers to an individual, obviously, because several times God refers to him directly. Later on, we just read the part where he refers to him as a prince. So this is a military leader. And as you will see in just a minute, I believe that it is a military leader or a dictator who actually is part of a coalition of Islamic nations and the nation of Russia. But it goes now into those nine other proper names because that's a title. But now it begins to talk about all of those. It talks about specific geographical locations. And you might look at that and say, well, I can look at my map. I even got a Bible map in the back here, but I'm having trouble finding Magog and Rosh and Meshech and Tubal and Persia and Cush and Put and Gomer, uh, Beth Togarma. Really, none of these are found in the modern maps. But recognize that when Ezekiel was writing this, when God was giving this revelation, he was using the ancient place names familiar to people of that day. So if you're a note taker, we'll go through each one of them and I'll explain to you who that I think they are. The first is Magog. And Magog probably is the Scythians. We know that because we have the Jewish historian Josephus who talks about them as the part that the Scythians actually inhabited what was called the land of Magog. Now, if you want to go back and look at your history books, or the good news now, because we have the Internet, you can just type in Scythians in Google, because after all, Google knows all, right? And you will find that those were nomadic tribes that actually existed in what today we would call Central Asia. And this would include some of the steppes of northern and modern Russia. And so it probably includes what today we would call Russia or what those of us a little bit older remember the former Soviet Union. But today we would call that Russia and then some of the Stan countries. When I say that, I'm talking about Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, could even be all the way over to Afghanistan, maybe not that far. But it's certainly this Russian area. And so the first one is Magog. Okay, the second one would be Rosh. Now, some people have tried to say, well, Rosh, oh, that sounds like Russia, so it must be Russia. Well, it probably is, but not for that reason, because Rosh really means head or top or summit or chief. But it does talk about the fact that uh, those people from Rosh are in the remotest parts of the north. 
Now, when you talk about north, I know for many of us, we think Seattle is the center of the universe, and we north of that would be Bellingham, or south of that would be Tacoma. But in the Bible, what? Um, the center of the universe would be what? Jerusalem. So what is directly north in the most remotest part of that? And that would be Russia. And so, again, you can see north of Jerusalem, Ruth, would be Russia. So I think it is indeed Russia, but it's not because Rosh sounds like Russia. It is that, again, it is identifying another aspect of the Rosh area. So Magog and Rush would be what we today would call Russia. Okay, what about Meshech and Tubal? Well, I've had some people say, well, Meshech must be Moscow, and Tubal must be Toblisk. And I'm going, no, I don't think so. Uh, because it actually says that these individuals, um, were Meshech and Tubal, actually traded with Tyre. Now, what's Tyre? Well, there are a lot of prophecies, interesting enough, in the Old Testament related to Tyre. This would what we would today call modern-day Lebanon. Well, again, then we can probably say that it was not what we could call Russia. It's probably what today we'd call Turkey. And again, archaeology helps us because we have found Assyrian inscriptions about Meshech and Tubal. So we're talking about today what uh, is Turkey, what then was the Assyrian Empire. Now, if you do look, if you have a Bible that has um, Bible maps in the back, you can go see where the Assyrians were, and you can see, yes, about that's where kind of the Turkish areas, the Hittites and the Assyrians were in parts of what today we would call Turkey. Okay, so now we have Russia, now we have Turkey. Persia. Well, that's a little easier, interestingly enough, because up until 1935, what today we call Iran was called Persia. And we even talk about the fact that in that area of the world, they are Persians. The Persians have given us all sorts of wonderful Arab stories. For some of you kids, you ever heard about um, Aladdin and the flying carpets? Well, that comes from the Persians. Those were the stories of the Persians. Uh, to, the day, to this day, you have some Persians who are Sufis, and they are whirling dervishes, and they have this uh, experience that they have. And so this is part of that. So again, very clear, the word Persian and Persian appears many times in the Old Testament. And so we're talking about an area that today we would identify as modern-day Iran. And by the way, Egypt, which I talked about last hour, and Iran are the two largest countries in terms of population. It has 70 million people in that country. It is a vast country. If you have a map of modern um, world, you will sometimes forget how large and huge Iran is and also how powerful it is, even before it gets a nuclear weapon, which we talked about last time. Okay, we have then Russia, we have Turkey, now we have Iran. Let's talk about another one. This one is called Kush. Now, some of your translations will identify it as Ethiopia. I just read one, which I think didn't, is not an accurate translation. Who am I to disagree with translators? But a lot of people think that Kush probably is, again, the country that is directly south of Egypt. And so that would mean Ethiopia could be part of it, but more likely it would be Sudan. Now, we have Sudan that has been split. Northern Sudan is a very radical Muslim country. Southern Sudan, where there have been so many Christians killed, is now becoming more of a Christian country. So it's, but northern Sudan was a place that harbored Osama bin Laden. So it, again, helps you begin to see uh, the radicalism. So we've gone north to Russia. We've gone, if you will, east to Persia and Iran. We've gone south to Kush. Let's finish this off because now we go west 
to put. And some of your translations would have put, P-U-T, others P-H-U-T. But again, this is described as a distant land to the west of Egypt. Well, what's west of Egypt to this day? It's what we would call Libya. Now, in the first hour, I also talked about the fact that Libya today includes Cyrene. So this is actually a country that shows up both in the Old and New Testament. And the country or the region of Put could include not only Libya, but maybe Algeria and even Tunisia. I don't know how far over that would go. But again, it was under the control of Muammar Gaddafi until last year. You notice the number of dictators that are sort of... uh, um, Going on to their reward, you might say, and it isn't 70 virgins uh, in paradise. Uh, He is another one. And now the real question that I raised last time is, will this become a radical Muslim state or will it go towards democracy? I think it looks like it's becoming that uh, radical, but we will see. And so now we have a little bit of an idea of the four corners. But then we have another name that is mentioned, and that's Gomer. Okay, for those of us old enough, it's not Gomer Pyle. I know everybody's thinking that as soon as I say it. And some have suggested, well, Gomer must be Germany because Gomer sounds like Germany. Well, and there are some people that are prophecy teachers that have said it's Germany. I'm not necessarily going to say it's completely wrong, but I think it's less likely. And the reason for that is, is again, going back to some of the references that we have at the time, oftentimes Sumerians, and that's Sumerians with a C-I, not Sumerians like Syria. Sumerians were located in that area. And again, that Jewish historian Josephus identifies another aspect of that area of Asia Minor, which again would probably be another aspect of Turkey, uh, which would be the case. Well, then at this point, then you have one other one, and this is an interesting name, Beth Tagarma. And the word Beth, it really means house. So really it's just talking about the house of Tagarma, which would be another civilization, which again seems to be somewhat identified with where the Hittites are. And again, if you have a map on the back of your uh, Bible, you can see where the Hittites and the Assyrians were. And that again would be in the area near to where uh, Turkey would be. So that gives us sort of the Gog coalition, if you will. Gog being the... um, actual identifier and then the particular areas so Rosh, Russia, Magog maybe that whole area of Central Asia a lot of the Stan countries Meshach, Tubal would be Turkey, Persia we would certainly agree would be Iran then Kush which would be probably Sudan, could include Ethiopia. I'm not necessarily disagreeing with that. Put, obviously, Libya, maybe going into Tunisia and um, Algeria, and then Gomer and Beth Tugarma, other aspects of what today would be Turkey. And so that is your coalition uh, that now at least begins to answer that question of who. Now, based upon this, interestingly enough, we could then predict that this invasion we're going to talk about in just a minute to Israel actually comes from this coalition of nations. They come from the north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. They extend all the way to Iran in the east, all the way to Libya in the west and as far south as Sudan. One of the things that I think is most intriguing, once again, just illustrates prophecy, is if I were to have given this message, say, three or four decades ago, maybe even 20 years ago when you were just getting started, some people would look at that and they would really kind of cock their head a little bit. 
Let's go back to 1992 for just a minute. 20 years ago, uh, we had the Berlin Wall fall and the Soviet Union, but that was not a time in which Russia was having any close affiliation with Libya. Russia was certainly not having any major affiliation with Iran. And yet today, what seemed a little bit hard to understand seems very, very likely. The last hour, I showed a picture of Vladimir Putin with uh, Colonel Gaddafi. I could show you pictures of Vladimir Putin with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in Iran. And so this coalition that seemed very difficult to imagine, possible but unlikely, seems very likely indeed. And imagine this prophecy didn't come 20 years ago. It didn't come 50 years ago. It didn't even come 1,000 years ago. It came 2,500 years ago. Does that mean that we're on the very edge of what could take place? Well, one of the things Suzanne likes to say is, is that after she hears some of my talk, she is ready for the rapture before we even finish. And uh, as we conclude today, maybe I'll ask, are you ready? Because we could be very close, we could be very far away. But it is interesting that some of the actual chess pieces are beginning to line up in ways that they never have before. That means that the Lord could return before we finish this message, could return a thousand years from now. We don't know. But it is intriguing that all of this has begun to come together in very remarkable ways. Now, if you've been paying attention, you're going, okay, well, I know that there are a lot of enemies of Israel. But especially last hour in the Sunday school hour, you're talking about some of the nations closest to Israel that are the enemies. And they're not mentioned. Would you like to hear the explanations for that? There are a couple. Because we really don't see a mention of Egypt, of Syria, of Jordan, of Lebanon, or Saudi Arabia. Did you notice that? None of those are mentioned. Now, one explanation that has been put out by an individual, Bill Salas, and even though I disagree with him, I respect him as a scholar, is to suggest that actually there are two wars. There's the Gog and Magog war we're going to talk about in a minute in Ezekiel 38. But there's another war, and it's a Psalm 83 war. Um, you can, if you want to keep your finger there, go over there, but you'll see that in Psalm 83, guess what? You do see some of the countries I just mentioned a minute ago, like Egypt and others. So if that war actually is a different war, then you solve the problem. In other words, they get destroyed. And there are some individuals that have argued that maybe that answers the question about Islam. Because if you think about it, you know, you don't get that many references to Islam in the book of Revelation, do you? I mean, you do have people being beheaded, so maybe there's Muslims there. But some people have suggested maybe they get devastated. And so during the tribulation, now attention moves away from the second largest religion in the world, Islam, to this revived Holy Roman Empire in Rome. So one explanation is that. It's not one I believe, but at least I want to be fair. And a couple of times we're going to have people that disagree. On one of these issues you're going to have Tim LaHaye says one thing and John MacArthur says another. And if you think I'm going to try to referee that, my mama, mama didn't raise no dummies here. So on some of these, I'm going to say this is what they say and that's what they say. And my friends say this and my friends say that. And I'm for my friends. Um, and the, But it won't matter because it's all going to happen in the future and so we don't have to worry about it. So one explanation could be the Psalm 83 war. Second explanation could be that the nations nearest to Israel might be part of a future treaty with the Antichrist. I'll explain more about that in just a minute. Notice right now, if you were here the last hour in the Sunday school hour, I talked about the fact that there is a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. 
I suspect that it will go away, but that's a possibility that maybe if the Antichrist rises, and this happens during a time during the tribulation when the Antichrist is there, maybe they're in a peace treaty, and so that's a possibility. I think the best explanation for me is simply this. If you look at verse 6, it talks about the fact, it ends with the words, and many peoples with you. And so I think the explanation is, is that the nations that are listed there, um, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Put, uh, Cush, are the, if you will, distant enemies, the far enemies of Israel. But verse 6 then is also just kind of a, a final co- collection of the near enemies, that they may be part of that coalition as well. Pick your poison, pick your idea, any one of those alternatives makes sense. But let's move on because we spent a fair amount of time on the who. Let's now talk about the when. And this is where we have some disagreements. When does this battle take place? It certainly did not take place in the past. There is nothing that you have in ancient history that has anything like this particular battle. So one option And for those of you that have ever read the Left Behind series, uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, they place this at a time after the rapture, but before the tribulation. Some people think that the rapture starts the tribulation, maybe, but I think there's probably a gap in there. And so if you've ever read the books or you've ever seen Kirk Cameron in the movie, you know, you see that uh, after this rapture, then they are having this uh, battle taking place. So that's certainly one option, that it takes place after the rapture but before the tribulation. By the way, it doesn't matter because if you're a Christian, it all happens after you're gone anyway. But we're going to try to see if we can place it. So one idea is that. Another one is that maybe it takes place in connection with the Battle of Armageddon. At the end of the tribulation, at the end of this seven-year period, there is a great battle. And maybe this is really a different way of describing the Battle of Armageddon. Possibly. But it seems to be a coalition between the north... And maybe the king of the south, but there's nothing about the king of the east and certainly not much about the Antichrist. So it's a possibility. Another option is that it takes place at the end of the millennium because there is a reference in Revelation 28 about Gog and Magog. I've got a typo there. I'll fix it before I send it on to Joe. And um, that's a possibility, and I believe that's John MacArthur's view. But I think there's an important clue here. Look back to Ezekiel 38. Look at verses 8, 11, and 14 in your Bible there. And it seems to give us a couple of points. It says, first of all, the battle will take place at a time when Israel was regathered. Obviously, we have to have a nation of Israel, which we now have, into its ancient land, which we have. But it's dwelling securely and at rest. That's kind of intriguing because I would suggest to you that Israel is not at rest. Some of you I know have traveled to the Holy Land. And uh, as you step off the plane, the first thing you see is armed guards, you know, people with AK-47s, right? And you can't walk anywhere in Jerusalem without seeing a military presence. And that's because of the incredible dangers in Israel. Now, when you go there, people say, I'm probably safer in Israel, in Jerusalem, than I am in Seattle. That may be true, but nevertheless, it's still a place which I can't honestly in my heart say that it's at rest. And so whether it's Mark Hitchcock or more recently when I was at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, I asked my friend Kay Arthur when I was interviewing her about this. She says, Israel is not at rest. 
So it couldn't be now. But it also would suggest that, you know, is it at rest in the millennial kingdom? True, that would be one possibility. But we're also told in Isaiah 2.4 that there's no war during the millennial kingdom or millennial time. So maybe not. So the suggestion a lot of people have come up with is, is another time when Israel could be at rest is when the Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel. They are at rest. He, in a sense, protecting them. And in those first three and a half years of what is called that seven-year tribulation, they could be at rest. And so a lot of people argue that that could be the time. But if you want to come up with a different view, I'm not breaking fellowship over that. Uh, certainly the bottom line is, for all of us, it's in the future, right? But it is certainly a battle taking place. The argument is is that after the rapture, a group of ten world leaders will form a coalition in what used to be the ancient Roman Empire. And out of that group will come a strong man, which is described in the book of Daniel, Daniel 9.26. He's the prince who is to come. He's called the Antichrist. He's called many other things throughout the New Testament. And so it is quite possible then that he would, as we said, enter into this peace treaty with Israel, which later he breaks, by the way. And this might be the first time that Israel would be able to relax. Sadly, though, they've made peace with a man that will ultimately intend them harm. And that the invasion takes place after the rapture and after the peace treaty is signed with the Antichrist. That's at least the idea. Let's move on to the next question, because we have the who and the when, but about the why. And one of our questions in the question and answer period already assumed the answer I'm going to give you right now. Why would you have these nations coming against Israel? Well, I think we have some answers, again, in Ezekiel 38. First, it talks about the fact that the invading force desires to acquire more territory. I think you can get that from verse 8 there in the passage. Uh, Certainly, they came to plunder Israel and amass wealth. Verse 12 seems to imply that. And when you talk about getting land and certainly getting wealth, it comes back to one of the questions was asked just a minute ago, because they have recently found vast reserves of gas off of the coast of Israel, natural gas. The most recent estimates are that it's at least $150 billion worth, and that estimate goes up every year as they find out more. So there is a tremendous amount of wealth just off the coast of Israel, not to mention and all the other wealth that comes from that uh, country as well. So certainly acquiring land, certainly amassing wealth are the case. But then also I think you can get maybe from verses 10 and 16 the fact that the invading army has really come to destroy the people of Israel. Sadly for a Jew, almost all of Western civilization is about the destruction of the Jewish people. And even last hour, we talked about the attempts to destroy the Jewish people. Think of Haman and Esther and things of that nature. And so certainly we look at not only the far enemies, but the close enemies of Israel. They want to wipe Israel off the map. It was the case that if you went to the website of the Palestinian Authority, they took the map down. But they used to have a map and just said Palestine. There's no place for Israel. 
for people to say, well, we hope that the Israelis and the Palestinians will live together. Well, the Palestinian Authority didn't even have a place for Israel on their map and just illustrated again the desire to push them into the sea. And here, as we look at many of these Muslim countries, we know how they would love to destroy Israel because in the Quran there is the idea that if indeed you've held the land, it is always yours. And since there was a time in which Muslims held that land, uh, they are not willing to share that. This is all seen as Muslim land, and they want to take it back once again. And fourth and finally, one possibility, if you accept our idea of this taking place during the first part of the tribulation, then these nations might attack to even challenge the Antichrist. They are not part of that uh, coalition of European nations. And perhaps, after all, they are attacking because of the treaty itself. So there are all sorts of possibilities as to why. Well, that now brings us to our next question, right? That is the what. The product, you know, what results when Israel is at war. And when the invading army goes there, there's no stopping them. They're coming with a desire. They are bent on war. They're bent on destruction. And the Jewish people now find themselves completely surrounded. And that is a mismatch. You know, it is like they have no opportunity to even have the possibility of being successful. Israel has won every war so far. We talked in the first hour about the 1967 Six-Day War, the 1973 Yom Kippur War. But this time, from a, any kind of perspective, they are completely outmatched by a huge nations that are now coming against them. It even says that Gog and his army, remember Gog is the title of this prince or this dictator, will cover Israel like a cloud. And here's now an opportunity for God to show that he exists. Because there is no opportunity for Israel to be successful. But this is a time in which God comes to rescue his people. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 actually describes what you might call a one-day war. You know, not a six-day war. This one is over before it starts. And I think, again, whether you have ever read the um, Left Behind series or seen the movie, it just, you know, it's almost over before it starts because God moves quickly to annihilate the army. And then look at verse 16 here. It, because of that, in a sense, God sanctifies himself. God shows up. And it is a demonstration of God's power in which he supremely and supernaturally protects them and defeats the army without Israel having to do very much at all. Well, how does that happen? Well, the scriptures give us indication of that as well. First, it talks about a great earthquake. Look at verses 19 and 20. There's a great earthquake that actually confuses the invaders. I do not need to tell somebody living in Seattle what an earthquake is like, right? And how confusing that can be. And you can imagine a massive earthquake, how that confuses the troops. So that's the first thing. Verse 21, then there is infighting among the troops. There is... um, Various troops, maybe because they had not identified themselves, maybe in the midst of the fog of war or whatever, but they actually shoot each other down. Uh, So that is another reason why they are destroyed. Then verse 22 seems to imply that there's this horrible, lethal plague that uh, adds to their misery and wipes them out. And then finally, verse 22 as well, the second part of verse 22, a torrential rain, hailstones, fire, and burning sulfur. 
I would say right now that if you are in the Iranian Revolutionary Guard or you're in the Russian army and you think that the uh, war of Gog and Magog is going to take place in your lifetime, you might want to de-enlist real quickly because this is not going to be an easy battle. It's going to be a wiping out of all of these individuals, which again answers a question that many people have had about prophecy. Because if you look at the book of Revelation, you don't see a lot about Islam there. First of all, I don't see about, a lot about Christianity. You think about that. You know, in the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation, we talk about the various churches. It's Christian there. But all of a sudden, then it's just as Jewish as it can be. Well, what happened to all the Christians? They're gone. I think you can make a pretty good case that from Revelation 4 on, it's not very Christian. It's pretty Jewish. Well, the largest world religion is Christianity. Well, it's gone. At least the believers who are raptured, I believe, are gone. But you don't see much about Islam either. And that's the second largest religion in the world, 1.3 billion. Well, if they are devastated, maybe they become less significant. Russia's less significant. All these Muslim countries are less significant. And in the remaining power vacuum, the Antichrist is at least a possibility. They swoop down. Of course, they came to bury Israel. But what happens? Instead, God buries them. Well, then let's look at um, the how, the prophetic significance. What is that? And again, in your notes, you can put down a few things because I think we can begin to ask ourselves some very important questions. How is the world stage being set for the fulfillment of this prophecy? I don't necessarily think we're seeing prophecy being fulfilled. But if, you know, you were to close the screen here and people behind the stage were to set up the props and you open the screen, you know, behind the scenes, things are beginning to move all of the elements. And I believe that that certainly is the case. And I think we are witnessing some of that today that tells us that we could be very close to the end. Every generation has certainly looked with expectation for the return of Christ. Perhaps we're closer than we've ever imagined we are in light of some of these ideas. And so again, the way this even begins to be realistic is all the things that had to take place. Um, over the years, I've had a chance to be with some people that have written on prophecy. Uh, Dr. Walvard at Dallas Seminary before he died, I certainly had him speak. Uh, it is amazing, but J. Dwight Pentecost is still preaching at Dallas Seminary. He got up there the other day in chapel without a note, and he spoke on what it means to be in Christ. And he is, what, 93 years old, I think, something like that, somebody said. Uh, and, of course, being with uh, Mark Hitchcock and Tommy Ice and others. And some of them have um, commentaries, prophecy commentaries and things like that from the 19th century, where there were believers at the time saying, you know, the Jews have to return back to Israel. And at the time, it seemed so unlikely. But in 1948, we certainly have the nation of Israel. And that now makes it possible to believe these prophecies could unfold. But if you go back and look at Ezekiel 39, turn over real quickly, you'll see that here it also talks about Israel having possession of the mountains of Israel. Well, what are those? Well, those mountains were the ones that were actually taken into possession in 1967 in that Six-Day War. 
So if indeed you're looking at the prophetic clock, it just moved a little closer to midnight, didn't it? Because it's one thing to be in the land. It's another thing to have the mountains. And so you can see how just in our lifetime, for those of us a little bit older, you young, young kids, not your lifetime, but for older guys here, they're still out here. In our lifetime, we have seen even the prophetic clock tick one more time. Well, I wanted to make a few other comments before we wind down for today because you might say, well, what about some of those other nations that aren't mentioned? In the last hour, I talked about Egypt. Is it possible that Egypt becomes the king of the south? Some people have suggested that because you have the king of the north. We also know the king of the east. I won't spend much time about that. But as we look at the Middle East, is it possible it's the king of the south? There's a possibility, at least. The word Egypt in Egyptian appears 850 times in the Old Testament. And about 250 of those verses actually contain various prophecies that were even fulfilled in that time. I will give a PDF file of this to Joe, and you can look these up later. But these were prophecies given then that were fulfilled in that time. Which is interesting because, as I said, 27% of the Bible when it was written was prophetic. And a fair amount of that has already been fulfilled. The fact that we've seen it literally fulfilled tells us that the others that have yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled one day. And a lot of those prophecies have to do with Egypt. Now, there was a time in which Egypt was a powerful country. Herodotus, the Greek historian, referred to it as the gift of the Nile. But by about the 6th century B.C., it began to slide into decline. And in the 20th century, once it gained independence, it has now um, become more powerful. But up until recently, it's really been controlled by military leaders. Now, possibly, could be controlled by this revolution. In the last hour, I talked about the Pew study in which it actually uh, was uh, raising some fundamental questions. And we find now that more than half of Egyptians would like to actually see the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, which was signed by Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin, actually annulled. Up to 70% want to at least amend it or cancel it. So we're seeing that uh, maybe the peace that has existed between Egypt and Israel might contain. And if indeed that is the case, maybe it becomes the king of the south. If you're taking some notes, you might go and look at Daniel 11 later on. But Daniel 11:40 says at the end time, and when it says at the end time means at the end times, which we're in right now, it refers to the future and to a king of the south. And that seems to be a coalition of some of the northern African allies, Libya and Kush and Sudan. And it represents an attack by this great north-south coalition, perhaps against the Antichrist. Could even take place after the attack, of the Ezekiel attack. Nobody really knows for sure. But it certainly tells us that the Antichrist will try to secure Israel and many will fall. But it also says that some of these ancient places will be spared. And so some people believe that during the Great Tribulation, the Jews will leave Israel and they will go to Edom or Petra, uh, which we saw the last hour. And that was where they may live to be protected while the reign of the Antichrist uh, begins to persecute all of those Jews. And it gives that uh, idea of maybe God providing divine protection in that area as well. What about Libya and Libya's last days? Last time I talked about, last hour I talked a little bit about Libya. After 42 years, you see that this dictatorship of Colonel Gaddafi has come down. I mentioned last hour just a little bit about how Libya is in the Bible. 
because Cyrene is really part of modern-day Libya. But yet it's still significant in the future because we saw in verse 5 here that it's going to show up. And so again, we can see that maybe there is still some future interaction between um, Egypt and Libya in this coalition. But what about this northern storm, Russia, Turkey, and Iran? Well, today we see in the modern-day Russia that has been an important power. Even though it's lost some of its power as the Soviet Union, it certainly is beginning to rise again. The bear is back. And uh, Vladimir Putin and Medvedev and others are certainly trying to assert Russia as a dominant power. And it has certainly been developing relations with many of those other countries, including one I haven't mentioned until now, Syria. And so, again, you can see that it is quite possible that Russia could be the leader of those coalitions. And who would have, even two decades ago, when this church was getting started, would have predicted that Russian leaders would work with Syria, that Russian leaders would work with Libya, that Russian leaders would work with Iran, and that's exactly what has unfolded. What about Turkey? Well, Turkey has been a regional power. As a matter of fact, there are some people right now, George, uh, writing with uh, Stratford, George Friedman, has actually argued that maybe the most dominant power in the Middle East in the future would be, of all things, Turkey. Turkey used to be a fairly secularized Muslim country, but ever since the AKP, which is the Turkish Justice and Development Party, which is a more radical Muslim group, has taken power, now you see a very different kind of Turkey, one that is not going to be a member of the EU, one that in some ways might want to reestablish the Ottoman Empire, where you had the Caliphate. And so you can again see how they would have all sorts of intentions and certainly want to have access to the wealth and resources of present-day Israel. And finally, do have to say a little bit about Iran. Iran is always in the news. You have Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. He's working to develop various nuclear weapons, and he desires to use those nuclear weapons against what he calls the little Satan. Who's that? Israel. And the great Satan. Who's that? The United States. You know, he's looking for the return of the Mahdi. He believes that uh, as many of the so-called Twelvers, which is kind of a sect of Shiite Islam, believes that the Twelfth Imam, Mahdi, uh, never died, but he is out there and he is going to return in the midst of this confrontation, really a conflagration. And this is why many people think that he would want to use nuclear weapons because he believes that in using nuclear weapons, number one, he would bring back the return of the Mahdi and Israel would not be able to fire against him because the Mahdi would protect Iran. And the Mahdi, in a sense, is coming as, if you will, the returning Christ. But in the Mahdi and the teaching of that, they also believe that there will be an Antichrist that will return. And in a sense, they've taken Christian eschatology and turned it on its head. So what we would call the Antichrist, they call the Christ, who will come and he will place a, a sign on people's forehead and he will bring about peace. That's their Christ, who we would call the Antichrist. And who we would call the Christ, they call the Antichrist because he will come to help the Jews. So you can see they have taken the book of Revelation literally and absolutely turned it on its head. And so again, you can see the impact of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who is the current leader in Iran. And again, will Iran strike against Israel? As I asked the question last time, will Israel strike against Iran? Lots of questions.
But as we wind down for today, let me just ask a question. We can look at all this prophecy. We can think about all the things happening in the world. But the real question we need to ask ourselves about prophecy is, are you ready? You know, are you ready? Because the events in the Middle East have a remarkable correspondence with end times prophecy. I'm not setting a date and I have no idea when the Lord returns because you know what? It says no man knows the hour, right? Or the day. Or even the era, necessarily. But we can see the signs and the signs are of concern. And they would certainly suggest that indeed there is a yearning for peace. There are threats from every point of the compass. I've taken you to the north. I've taken you to the south. I've taken you to the east and west. And we can see that. And really the next event on the prophetic calendar is what? The rapture of the church. And the question is, are you ready to go? That's a good question to ask yourself today as we come to the end. Again, I might recommend those books because this would be just a way in which you could read a little bit more. But prophecy is certainly something that it causes us to understand the times. But if there's anything about prophecy that I want to apply to our individual lives, it's to ask, are you ready? First of all, are you a Christian? If you are, are you ready to go? Are you holding on so tightly to this world that if the Lord returned, you go, no, not yet. Got to see my children graduate. I got to get that new job. You know, I, I, you know, I got to finish off my bucket list, whatever. But the question is, are you ready to go? If the Lord were to come right now, are you ready to go? But an even more important question, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you've come here today and never trusted in him, you have a more important question. Are you even ready to go? As the old Beatles song said, do you have a ticket to ride? Do you have your ticket? And how important it is for you, in the quiet of your heart, as we pray in just a minute, to get serious and recognize there is nothing you could do to merit favor before a holy and righteous God. But the good news is, Jesus Christ came to die for your sins, to pay the penalty that you should have paid, but instead gives you the free gift of everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a chance to uh, just learn a little bit more from your word. We do not know when your son is coming, but we do know that he is. And we pray that we might be ready. I pray first for my fellow believers in this room, that all of us would be sobered by this reality that you could return at any time. And that would cause us to live holy lives. It would cause us to share our faith with everyone that we know, that they might leave this planet and not go through this tribulation that we've been talking about. And so I pray that each one of us would take seriously what we've learned here today. But Father, I also pray for anybody in this room who's never accepted you as Savior and Lord, that right now, in his or her quietness of their heart, might accept this free gift that you offer. They might confess that they are sinners, that they are cut off from you. And accept right now in their heart that free gift. Father, we thank you for this wonderful anniversary. We pray your richest blessings upon Living Hope Bible Church. We pray that we would continue to grow and impact the world. And we're grateful for all that you have done in our lives. I pray your blessings upon this day and this coming week. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.